Most days of our lives pass by with very little obvious significance. One day melts into the next, passes away, and it's largely forgotten. But along life's journey are scattered a few days, rare days, that prove highly significant, perhaps even life-altering, and are never to be forgotten. Sometimes these days are immediately obvious to us, such as, for instance, a wedding day. At other times, their significance is only seen through the lens of historical perspective. You look back and you realize how pivotal the experiences of a particular day have proven to be in your life. And that's really the stuff of biography, isn't it? In a formal biography, the biographer labors to define and explicate the pivotal experiences of a famous person. The biography of Martin Luther, for instance, one of my interests in life. That individual is going to have to identify and exegete the day in July of 1502 when Luther got caught in a thunderstorm near Strottenheim. The biographer would have to include Luther's visit in 1510 to Rome. Very significant experience. The posting of the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg in 1517. The Leipzig debate, 1519. The day Luther burned the papal bull of excommunication against him in 1520, surrounded by his students at the university. The Diet of Worms in 1521. The colloquy at Marburg in 1529. These are pivotal days to understand the life of Martin Luther. But even informally, even something as mundane as a family scrapbook pursues these same basic ideas. What are the important days? What are the important events? I would like you to think with me along this line. You really cannot know someone very well without being able to identify and unpack the most significant, pivotal points in that person's life. Let me take that one step further. If you are a born-again Christian, you are a biographer of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And each of us as followers of Christ should be increasingly able to articulate the key moments in Jesus' life as we grow in relationship with Him. I really don't care a whole lot at all if you can articulate the key moments in the life of Martin Luther. It might be very helpful for you to do that, and we, let's talk sometime about that. But I, it doesn't matter that we know of the key events in the life of Martin Luther. But could you articulate the key moments in the life of Jesus Christ? Could you explain to someone who does not know Him, here are the places, here are those days that really, really mattered. The liturgical church calendar is constructed to help Christians do this. There is, for instance, Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, which obviously emphasized the crucial historical occasion of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Now, every biography is going to include the date of birth of the individual being considered, but obviously for Christ there's something a bit unique even to his birth. And so it's an important concept to know of the birth of Christ 
and some of the details that are there. At this time of the year, there's the season of Lent, including Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, all attempts to drive home to worshipers the key events in Jesus' life. Now, as Baptists, we pay little attention to the liturgical calendar, and for a number of good reasons. But our relative disregard, it's not absolute disregard, certainly, but our relative disregard to this liturgical calendar should never translate into a failure to grow increasingly aware of the key moments in Jesus' life. In some respects, the liturgical calendar hurts people who really want to grow close to Christ because it tends to steer us away from the whole counsel of God. There's such an orientation to the birth of Christ, to the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, within the flow of a church's yearly calendar, that there's all kinds of things about Scripture that are never considered in the context of the local church. But may we never allow that to take us away from contemplating those days that were pivotal in the life of Christ, that we might know Him better. And one of those moments, a day long recognized by the liturgical church as Palm Sunday, is one of the pivotal days in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I think in 18 years, this is the second time on this day that we've talked directly about this date on this day. And these matters are known to us as a church because we do consider it from other angles as we've studied through other books and looked at different concepts of Scripture over the years. But we must understand that Palm Sunday is a day like the day of Jesus' birth, like the day of Jesus' death, like the day of His resurrection, the significance of which we must grasp if we hope to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And it would be my desire that we as a church would be able to talk to someone who does not know Christ, does not know the Bible, and could put together the events of this day and their significance. Can you do that? What happened on the day referred to as Palm Sunday, and why does it matter? I offer three basic ideas. These are not going to be very evenly spaced. We'll spend most of our time in the first because it, in a sense, is the foundation for the latter two. But three ideas that look past, present, and future. The first is that Jesus proved He was Messiah by fulfilling prophecy. On this particular day, we remember that particular time when Jesus proved He was Messiah by fulfilling prophecy. I invite you to Zechariah chapter 9. It's at the end of the Old Testament, close to the very end. It's kind of tucked away there. A minor prophet, shorter prophecy, but a vital book. Zechariah chapter 9. Let me just trace the context briefly. Chapters 9 through 11 is one oracle, one basic message to Zechariah from God. And it deals with largely the judgment against Israel's enemies. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Zechariah receives a prophecy concerning the future military exploits of Alexander the Great against Israel's enemies. Now, one of the budding theologians in my home was looking at the screen over my shoulder as I was editing this portion and said, the Bible talks about Alexander the Great? It does, numerous times, long before he lived, and lays out much of what Alexander the Great would do. 
It's kind of amazing, but it's Scripture. God has written the book. It's His prophecy. And that is discussed here in these first eight verses. Now in verse 9, God also reveals that an Israelite king will someday present himself as a Savior to Israel. Verse 9, let's consider it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, or the offspring, the youth of a donkey. The event in view here is not described in any detail. In fact, it just jumps right into this point. We're talking about Alexander the Great. Obviously, the original recipients don't know that, but they know there's there's some king coming along. There's some destruction going to come to God's enemies. And all of a sudden, now we're talking about an Israeli king. And it's reason for Israel to rejoice. The cause of this rejoicing is that this righteous king from Israel will visit upon God's people salvation. They'll be saved. Think on that. Let that serve as a hook in your mind as we work our way through this concept today. He will bring salvation. Now, oddly enough, indeed somewhat troubling to the average Israelite, perhaps, is the notion that this king will be humble and mounted on a donkey. When a king rode a donkey in that day, it was a sign of humility, but it was even more so a sign of peace. This king will not ride into Jerusalem mounted on a war horse, but on a donkey. Allow that to serve as another hook. Just remember that concept. He brings salvation. He does not come on a white charger. In fact, through the service of this king, God says, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem. Northern Israel, southern Israel, inspiring those ideas, but just saying the people of God, the Israelites, the chariot will be cut off, the war horse will be cut off, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is one of those prophecies that just catches your attention simply because it makes no sense at all. How does a king come riding a donkey and establish peace throughout the whole earth? If you're going to have such a rain that goes from sea to shining sea, you're going to have to come in with a white horse with a sword drawn and subject the nations of the earth. How does this work? We don't know, says the original recipients. In other words, this king will rule the entire planet. I think that's the idea, figure of speech from sea to sea and river to the ends of the earth, and will rule with peace. Isaiah 2, in prophecy, says, He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Nation will apparently continue to have some conflicts with one another and not quite know how to work through things, but there will be absolutely no need for arsenals any longer because this king will rule over all and will settle every dispute. How this king will rule earth in peace is not explained, only that he will do so riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's foal. At least that's part of the picture somehow. That's prophecy one. Prophecy 2, Daniel chapter 9. 
We just considered this passage recently as we were emphasizing more the prayer of Daniel in Daniel 9. And I don't want to take much time here on this, but every follower of Jesus needs to be very familiar with Daniel 9. Remember here, 605, Daniel is taken captive to Babylon, serves King Nebuchadnezzar. In 586 BC, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. That's the place where God's glory resides. That's where his people worship him. And that temple is destroyed while Daniel is in Babylon. He goes as a young man capable of knowing what is going on in his life. He lives through the 70-year Babylonian captivity and understands from reading the prophet Jeremiah that at the end of that 70 years, God will restore his people to the land. And Daniel's great focus is upon restoring the temple where the Israelites could come back again and worship God. God directly answers Daniel's prayer by sending an angel who delivers a prophecy to Daniel concerning Israel's future, a prophecy which looks at a matter even more significant than the restoration of the temple. Hold on to that thought as well. Verse 25 says, Know therefore, Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince... There shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, which follow the seven, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. In 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes issues a decree that the Israelites return to rebuild Jerusalem. It is possible that the date for this is March 5th, 444 B.C. The chronology of ancient situations is is very hard to work through. You have to do some guesswork along the way because they weren't careful with marking off time as we are. But with this 69 sevens, which turns out to be 483 years, multiplying by 360-day years, lunar days, which is common with prophetic calculation, you come up with 173,880 days. Just to say it simply, none of us is going to live that long. That's a long time. 173,880 days. From the time that that decree is issued, at that point, start your clocks and an anointed one will be presented to Israel. Now, how we work out the chronology is not precise as to the exact date. There are two possibilities, in the spring of A.D. 32 or the spring of A.D. 33. Guess what took place then? Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. I don't know how anybody could answer this prophecy and just walk away with it and say it has nothing to do with anything. This is one place where God steps in and says, I wrote this book. 483 years is a long, long time. And it doesn't allow very well for collaboration between authors to come up with someone who fits this prophecy. Now it's cryptic. We need to read into it and understand it as things develop, but there's reasons for that as well. It's not until after the event that you can actually look back and see that it is the event, thereby excluding those who would be imitators and false messiahs. 
This leads us to Matthew 21. With these prophecies staked of riding into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, and with this prophecy of 173,880 days, those two put together, we come to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is within five days of his crucifixion. Knowing from Scripture that he will die on a cross, he nonetheless sets his face toward Jerusalem where his enemies await him like cobras in a cave. Jesus crosses the Jordan River. He passes through Jericho. There's a number of things that take place there. And then begins to ascend the 15 miles westward up the slopes of the Jordan River Valley to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Rather than pushing into Jerusalem on Friday afternoon, as might have been expected, Jesus stops at the village of Bethany on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So you're working your way westward. You come up to the heights of this mountain. Before cresting it and having a vision of Jerusalem, Jesus stops. He's about two miles east of Jerusalem. And he stays here with his friends, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, Lazarus, the one whom he has raised from the dead just six to eight weeks earlier. And this move affects two things. First, the authorities who want to kill Jesus can only travel outside of Jerusalem 1.4 miles on Sabbath, and Bethany is two miles outside the city. Now that doesn't answer for the days that come, but it answers for this preliminary approach to Jerusalem. Jesus stops short of that, which accomplishes two things. First of all, it provides him protection at this point. They're not going to take him with all of the pilgrim travelers that are around him moving their way up to celebrate Passover. But the other thing that this does is it allows those pilgrims who are traveling into the city, that extra two miles, not a very long walk. Well, for those people, for us it would be tough, but for them, not a long walk at all. They get into the Jerusalem, and what do you think they're doing for the next 24 hours? They're letting everybody know that Jesus is coming. So there's great anticipation that the prophet who raised Lazarus from the dead, the prophet who's created food and stilled the storm and healed all kinds of people, is coming to Jerusalem. The authorities don't want him here. They don't want to deal with him now. They don't want to deal with him during Passover. But Jesus has orchestrated things such that he will arrive in Jerusalem at Passover. 21 and verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage. We don't know where that is, but somewhere on the Mount of Olives, apparently on the way on the short walk to Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. It's my opinion that Jesus did not exercise omniscience here. He doesn't give these individuals this phrase that becomes some sort of way of mind control and overwhelming these people. But probably Jesus sets this up and uses this idea, the Lord has need, and uses that as the kind of the key word to know that these are the people who are part of this arrangement for this donkey and this donkey's foal. Apparently the mother being brought with the foal so that it will uh, allow for Christ to ride this donkey. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That is what? There is a quotation of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. This is done by Jesus orchestrating events by stopping at Bethany, orchestrating events by securing this donkey and riding into Jerusalem at precisely the right time that the anointed one was to present himself to Israel. It was indeed, as verse 4 makes clear, a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. This ancient prophecy given to Zechariah all along was pointing to Jesus Christ who fulfills it now centuries later. In verse 9, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna meaning something like please save or salvation now. It is a combination of prayer and praise. Save us, our Savior. Prayer and praise, or petition and praise, and derives directly from Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is a Hallel psalm, which the pilgrims would sing as they're ascending up the slopes to Jerusalem. It's interesting, isn't it? So this is what all the pilgrims have been singing, this psalm, as they've worked their way up, and now they're singing it directly in reference to Jesus. They're getting the point here. The Messiah has come. The Anointed One has presented Himself to Israel. They're not dense about Zechariah 9.9 and Daniel 9. They're not dense about these things. There are many who understand these things. And there is a response to Jesus. Blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. The humble, meek, righteous, peace-loving king who was to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt has just arrived at precisely the time that Daniel prophesies. Verse 10, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Stirred, the Greek word meaning to shake, often used in the context of an earthquake. In the vernacular of our day, Jerusalem was rocking with excitement. In Luke's account, he says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The earth itself has been waiting for this anointed one to present himself to Israel, and he's here. You stop the mouths of people and the rocks are going to start talking. On this crucial day, then, Jesus proves he was Messiah by fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel and Zechariah. But this moment was crucial for a second reason. He proved he was Messiah on this day in very dramatic fashion. But secondly, Jesus on this day took on death by entering Jerusalem. This is a crucial, pivotal turning point in Christ's life this day. For he enters into Jerusalem to assault death. Jesus had been in Jerusalem before. But on this day, he rides into Jerusalem knowing it is filled with bitter enemies that are intent on murdering him. This is the day that Jesus sets in motion a series of events that will end on Friday of this week with his crucifixion. He also knows that the adoring crowds do not want to repent and follow him. 
He's not confused about all of this excitement and praise. They want him to perform miracles. They want him to throw off the rule of Rome as a military hero. We have one here who can still the storm and raise the dead and can produce food out of nowhere. Certainly this one can destroy the stronghold of Rome. And Jesus disappoints their expectations over the next few days, and these very crowds eventually join the Pharisees and call for Jesus' crucifixion. Not only does Jesus know all of this, he knows he will be crucified and yet purposefully orchestrates a showdown with the leaders during Passover. So yes, the crowds are welcoming him. Yes, he is fulfilling prophecy, but there's more going on than isn't this exciting people are finally receiving me. He knows they're not receiving him. Despite all external appearances, he knows he's marching to his death. Now in the Roman church's pageantry during Palm Sunday, I'm not quite sure how you could keep your bearings and actually remember what actually happened biblically. There's so much pageantry, and if you look at the history of it, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling, all of the things that they do on Palm Sunday to remember all this. But there's a blessing of these palm branches, and then there's a procession where people... In the church, will go outside or somewhere, depending on the climate and, and on the context and the tradition of it all. But they'll go on this journey and then come back to the doors of the church. And it's here that there really is a neat part of it all. The doors will be shut. And the people of the church will sing hymns of triumph. And then a subdeacon will strike the door of the church with the staff of the cross that has been marched around in this procession. And the door opens, and the people enter into the church. This ritual nicely symbolizes, on Palm Sunday, what Jesus is doing as he enters into Jerusalem. He is banging down the doors of death with the cross. And he knows it. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26, following the verse that we've just looked at, it says, the anointed one shall be cut off. This anointed one will enter in on the foal of a donkey to the celebration of all who are singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus knows he's entering Jerusalem to be cut off and to have nothing. He did that. For sinners, such as you and me. How can we not love Christ when we consider what he's done? He knows where this journey is taking him. He knows that he will be separated from the Father. He knows that he will be judged and pay the penalty of God's wrath against our sin. And yet he goes into the doors of Jerusalem and he knocks them down with the cross. Because he is going to take on the gates of hell with his life. It is a call to each one of us to repent and to trust the work that Christ will do. Jesus proved he was Messiah by fulfilling prophecy. Jesus took on death by entering Jerusalem. As we look past and as we look at the moment of what he is doing, 
But then thirdly, Jesus foreshadowed his ultimate triumph on this day. On this pivotal day, Jesus entered Jerusalem in peace, riding a donkey and offering salvation. And the crowd responds, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's go then to Matthew chapter 23 with that song ringing in our ears. Notice what Jesus says as he looks to the future yet to us. Matthew 23 and verse 37. Jesus knows the reality of the situation. And he cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What he means here is, You will not see me again after my death, Israel. You who have rejected me will not see me again until Israel cries out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? That's what the pilgrims were crying out as they received Jesus into Jerusalem. But he's saying, you won't see me again. My time with you is over. The anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing, the ancient prophecy says. And you will not say this again until you see me again. When will Israel see Jesus and say this of him? Day is yet future. We haven't seen it. But a day is coming when Jesus is going to change steeds. When a peaceful donkey's colt is going to be replaced by a white charger. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. I believe that Palm Sunday is prophetic of this day. Of this coming day that we read of in Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. We'll get to 21 in a moment, but 19 and verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Who else is known by that name but Christ? And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. How does Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 10 play out? How does this anointed one rule over the earth In peace, he first comes on a white horse and he conquers his enemies and puts down sin decisively. Chapter 21 and verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last, seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The Lamb is Christ. 
And this angel carries John away in the spirit to the great high mountain and showed him the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Jerusalem, the place where God meets with his people, the place where his temple has resided on earth. Having the glory of God, verse 11, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. There's three gates on the east, the north, the south, the west. In verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles and the Lamb. Now 22, and I saw no temple in the city. You see that? You remember what Daniel's prayer was all about? There has to be a temple in the city. We've got to get a temple, God, back in Jerusalem. And remember what God says to Daniel in chapter 9? You're going to go back to Palestine, to the promised land. But he talks to him not about a temple, but about an anointed one. Daniel got more than he counted on. And here we are. Because there's no temple in this city, ultimately. For it's temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The place to meet with God now is at the feet of Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Remember that old temple, the old tabernacle, where the glory of God came in behind the curtain and resided there over the Ark of the Covenant, shielded from everyone. Now the glory fills the whole city and lights the world. By its light, verse 24, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates shall never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Apparently a constant stream from the nations at all hours of the day and night, illumined by the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ. They, verse 26, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know about you, but on the surface of it, that verse writes me out of the city. Nothing detestable and nothing false. That's not who we are. Not before the glory of the Lamb. We have broken the law of God. We have violated His truth. We have worshipped other idols. And we bring in our hearts naturally what is detestable and false before Him. But we find the great hope there at the end that in the Lamb's book of life there are names that are written. And why are they written there? They are written there because Jesus tore down the gates of death when he went into Jerusalem and laid down his life 
and rose to defeat death. So that there are those who through faith in what Christ has done have their names written in this Lamb's book of life, not because they are righteous, but because they belong to Jesus, who defeated their sin and death. On this pivotal day, Jesus entered Jerusalem in peace, riding on a donkey and offering salvation. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday foreshadows the future pivotal day when Jesus will again reside in Jerusalem. This Time, it will be the eternal city, never to fall again. This time, he will not die. This time, he will light the world and rule the nations. This time, he will be the conqueror. But he will rule over hearts that are pure. The day is coming when crowds on this earth will again praise Jesus as the anointed one. And this time, the praise will never end. Forever and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we are awed by your word, by the way that you have orchestrated matters such that we know that Jesus is the anointed one who was cut off to pay the penalty of our sin. And in everything that we have seen with fulfilled prophecy, God, what fools would we have to be not to believe that he will return on a white horse? That he will enter into the eternal city. That he will light it forever. And rule in peace, just as you told Zechariah so many centuries ago. Father, I fear. I fear for anyone who is here, who is willing to walk in rejection of this Savior. Who thinks somehow that they're good enough and capable enough or unneedy of the saving grace that Jesus alone can provide. I pray, dear God, that they would see one riding on a donkey and that they might say, Blessed is the Savior who comes in the name of the Lord, not flippantly and selfishly, but with reality. I ask that you draw anyone who's separated from you through their sin to the saving grace of Christ, that they might be cleansed and that their names might be written in the Lamb's book of life. For those of us who have a name that is written there, we rejoice not in our goodness, but in Christ. And we relish, Father, the opportunity to consider this pivotal day in his journey on earth, and to rejoice that we have had a part in it. Through faith, we have been blessed along with Abraham. Through faith, we have been blessed with your saving grace, and we see the power of your cross. We see the reconciliation that has been provided, and we rejoice 
Father, I ask in the hearts of this church and those that are here right now, I ask God that you would deepen our love for Christ as we consider this pivotal moment in his life. And I pray that we would be awed by your saving plan. Stir something in our souls that leads us to live for eternity and for the day when by your grace we can walk in the eternal Jerusalem and worship in your actual presence visibly and free from sin. We long for that day. Pray that you'll change us and mold us and prepare us for it. And may we now sing as a prophecy of the worship and adoration of eternity that we will enjoy as your people. Through Christ I pray. Amen.